What we are talking about today is perhaps of greatest importance for all of us. And I want to make sure that we understand totally, as much as we are able, by the Spirit of God, what it is that God wants us to be in agreement with and understand with all our heart, acknowledge and accept. The time that we are looking at in the life of Jesus is the very end of his life on this earth. Last time we looked briefly at the scourging that he had had to endure, the mockery from the Roman soldiers, platting of the thorn of crowns upon his head, a scarlet robe put around his shoulders after they stripped his clothes off, and bowing the knee to him in mockery, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, taking a reed, a stick, putting it into his hand, mocking his reign as king, and taking it from him and beating him over the head with that same rod. We ended our study at that point. The humiliation, the shame, the torment, the pain from the scourgings and the beatings, the plucking out of the beard. We've seen so many places in the Old Testament Scriptures that have been fulfilled by these things that have already taken place in these last hours of Jesus' life on earth. This morning, we see Him on His final journey to the cross. And then on the cross, what I want to look at today is not just the fact that Jesus hung on the cross. But I want to look at the various individuals who were there present at that scene that are mentioned in the Word of God. And there are several. The first one is introduced to us in the passage that we'll read this morning. His name is Simon, a Cyrenian. We'll read from verse 32 of chapter 27 this morning. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put upon or up over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand, another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. 
Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Heavenly Father, we are, Lord, thankful for this descriptive word of this time that we have before us to study, Lord God, this most powerful moment in all of history. And I pray that your Spirit would fill our hearts with understanding and the word let us identify with these things that we're about to hear and say. We give you praise and thanks for it in the matchless name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I'm reminded of a spiritual song by the African-American peoples of long ago. Perhaps you're familiar with it. The title of the song is, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, it causes me to tremble. Very simple tune. A very powerful message. And the question that that song asks is valid for all of us. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Well, of course I wasn't there, neither were you. That was almost 2,000 years ago. But the essence of what is asked in that question is so very, very real and important for us to really grasp hold of. At the cross, there were people there, present, watching him breathe his very last breath and seeing and hearing the things that were taking place while he was hanging on that tree. Some were exuberant at being able to see the death of one they hated despised and wanted nothing less than all of that which was happening to him, and even more if it were possible, because they hated him so. There were others who were completely ignorant of who Jesus was and why he was there. They only knew that he was hanging from a cross and assumed that he was a criminal like some of the others who were also hanging there. Some were crying because they were weeping over the fact that their Savior, their loving Savior was dying and they didn't know why. It was painful. It was so very troubling for them to see. All of that is displayed in this Gospel and the other Gospel accounts. I want to take a look at those individuals and see if perhaps we can't identify with at least a few. And if we are able to identify with the emotion, with the pain, with the all kinds of things that were going through their minds, in some way, let it sink into our minds. I think of Simon, first of all, this man from Cyrene. That's some city in northern Africa. Simon is a mostly Hebrew name. There's not a guarantee that he was a Jew, but it is most likely, I believe, that he was a Jew and he was there in Jerusalem for the purpose of celebrating the Passover, the feast that God had called his people to, at least as much as they were able to. Every adult male Jew was to go to Jerusalem 
on that feast day and two others in the year to worship the Lord. Simon was there, perhaps as a Jew, doing just that. We're not really told much more about Simon, except that here, Matthew tells us, and it's agreed to by the other gospel records, that he was compelled to take the cross, forced to do so. Now, in Rome, they had a command that needed to be obeyed by all the subjects of Rome. And that command consisted of a statement that basically said, if a Roman soldier compels you to do something, you ought to do it. And Jesus mentions it in one of his statements that he makes, if a Roman soldier compels you to give him your cloak, give him the cloak and give him your robe also. If they would compel you to do it, they had to do exactly as Romans said, and usually it implied that they had to do it for a period of time or a distance, about a mile perhaps. But it was law. Nobody could say, not me, I'm not doing that. Simon was confronted by a Roman soldier. And the reason that he asks Simon is simply because Jesus was so weakened by the beatings that he couldn't carry the cross. It was probably just the beam upon which his hands would be nailed. Not the entire T-shaped cross that we so often see in pictures, but just the cross beam. Likely, it could have been that he was dragging the cross and the upright as well, but the implication in the Scripture is that he was forced to carry, which implies that it's only the cross beam and not the entire cross. But in any case, Jesus couldn't do it. He was too weak to do so. But he already had shed blood profusely, and in carrying that cross, his blood was already upon that cross beam, And this man, who was a Jew, who came to celebrate the Passover, who would find it to be a defilement to be touched by a man's blood, was forced now to carry that cross on behalf of this man that perhaps he didn't even know. He was from a distant land. It's possible that he had heard of Jesus, but we're not told that. It's possible that he knew of the miracles, the wonderful things that Jesus had done and said, but we're not told that. All we know is that this man was compelled to carry the cross. So I will assume at this point that we can conjecture about the fact that this man might not have known who Jesus was, why he was being led to be crucified. He only was there in Jerusalem to worship the Lord. In Jerusalem, the multitude of people were gathered around, and all of a sudden the crowd starts coming along this one place where this man has been so brutally beaten and is carrying a cross that he cannot hang, uh, hold on to or cannot endure, falls to the ground, and the Roman soldier turns to this one, selects this guy out of the crowd, and he says, you, take that cross, carry it for this man. And he had to do it. Compelled. Now again, we don't know much more about Simon than that, except for the fact that we are told Two disciples that are later introduced to us in the Word of God, primarily in the book of Acts and also in one of the writings of Paul the Apostle, two men named Rufus and Alexander, and they are the sons of one named Simon. I believe that we know enough about Simon that is recorded in the Word of God, mentioning him by name, because his sons became believers. We can assume a couple of things from that. 
It may be that Simon came to know the salvation that God had to offer through Jesus Christ by virtue of what he was compelled to do. It's a good likelihood. And if it was that, then we can know that he told his family. His sons Rufus and Alexander became believers. Paul mentions Rufus's mother as a woman of faith. So it seems that the family of Simon became believers. And I would love to see, and I believe we will, Simon standing with us in glory when we get to heaven to be worshiping our God. Simon was the father of two men who became pillars in Rome of the faith. I wonder, did Simon stay at the cross after Jesus was nailed to it and hanging from that cross, watching all that was happening around him? Somebody must have been there to let the writers of the gospel record know. Well, you think, well, the apostles, what about the apostles? Well, frankly, there was only one apostle that we're aware of who was present there. It seems that the rest of the apostles had indeed fled, just as Jesus had said they would. And we'll identify that one apostle a a while later on in our study this morning. Simon must have observed, and perhaps Luke in particular would have inquired of Simon, or in later years might have inquired of Rufus and Alexander. But somehow the word was spread about these events that had taken place. And Simon is a candidate for those who were there potentially to have been able to relate to men like Luke who were there, then, then later write about it in those gospel records. Of course, John, the apostle, and I may as well mention, because I let the cat out of the bag, he is one of the uh, people that are present. The only apostle that is mentioned in any of the gospel records with regard to who it was that watched him die. John was the only apostle identified by name. And we only know that because John himself wrote of it. But he didn't mention his own name in his gospel record of it. We just make the assumption, the connection, because of what he says. And it's obvious from what he says that he's referring to himself. There was one of the things that Jesus spoke While he was on the cross, perhaps you were familiar with the fact that Jesus, actually, it's recorded, had only spoken about seven times, and seven times recorded various things that Jesus spoke on the cross. And one of those was regard to John and also the woman who was standing next to him, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And Jesus looked down at John, looked down at Mary, And he spoke first to Mary, and he said, Mary, mother of Jesus Christ, woman, behold your son, looking at John. And then he looks at John, and he says, behold your mother. What Jesus was doing to Mary and John was uniting them in a different sort of way, that John was to take care of Mary. And he did so according to tradition, 
John went many years later to the city of Ephesus and ministered there, and he took Mary according to tradition with him. She likely did die in Ephesus. But here at the cross, John, the apostle, the one apostle he says about himself that Jesus loved, stood and watched him pour out every last drop of his blood. It's John who saw the soldier pierce his side with a sword. And out from his side, after the sword was removed, came blood and mixed with water. John records that for us. He was a faithful apostle. He was there. We don't know again about the others, but we know John was there. He saw it all. Mary saw it all. Remember when Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph brought him into Jerusalem to be circumcised. And in Jerusalem, they met up with a woman who was a prophetess. Her name was Anna. And they also met up with another individual, an older man. Very well stricken in years, it says. And he saw this child being carried into the temple area by this woman. And he stands in front of her and he says to her that this is what the Lord had promised. He saw it with his own eyes and he praised the Lord that he could see the salvation of Israel before he died. And then he turns to Mary and he says, And the sword will pierce your heart. And it did. Oh, her heart was indeed pierced as she looked upon her own dear son dying such a terrible death. John and Mary were there. They were believers. Oh, they were very, very faithful. Then there were two thieves, one on his right and one on his left. Originally, then all three of them on the cross and all the crowd gathered around, those, le- those thieves, both of them, began to throw all kinds of accusations and curses against Jesus, kind of joining with the crowd who was doing the same. But then one of them, perhaps after hearing Jesus say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, perhaps seeing how he responded on that cross to all of those accusations and all of those things that they were throwing at him, something in that man's heart broke and he realized he's innocent. He's not worthy of this kind of death. I am, but why are they crucifying him? And then he begins to put things together, listening to the crowd. They said, he said, he's the Son of God. If he's the Son of God, let him come down from that tree. This man heard those accusations and began to think. And something changed in his heart. And he turned to Jesus and he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He had a conversion experience on that cross. He was a thief. He was deserving of the punishment that he was having, but not that man. And he realized it. And when he came to that conclusion, he realized that this is more than just a man. And he saw the salvation of God through the eyes of Jesus Christ hanging on that cross. And he cried out to him, Oh, let me be with you in paradise when you come into your kingdom. And of course, you know the response of Jesus. It's one of those seven messages that Jesus spoke on the cross. He turned to that thief and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. This day. 
and he was. But they both ended their lives on that day. Two thieves, one of them turned to Christ, the other apparently did not. They were the elders, chief priests and scribes. Those were the ones who led the crowd in the accusations. Those were the ones who said things like, He trusted in God, let Him deliver Him now. If He will have Him, for He said, I am the Son of God. They said, if He is the Son of God, if He is the King of Israel, why can He not save Himself? And He made the statement, He saved others, Himself He cannot save. Why would they say, He saved others? That's an admission of the chief priests and elders and scribes, that this is indeed the Savior. He saved others. And He did. That's why He didn't come down from the cross. That's why He wouldn't come down from the cross. Because if He had come down from the cross, and He could have, if He had done so, then you and I would not be here today serving the risen Savior. It was God's purpose that He had to suffer those things that He had to go to the cross, that He had to die in that very way. Jesus Himself said, they're going to turn Me over to the Gentiles and they will crucify Me. That had to be done. And we've looked over and over again over our last several times of study in this great book. You should remember this. Jesus said, these things must be be done to fulfill all the Scriptures. They had to have been done. Everything that we've looked at in this portion of Scripture that we've read contains several different prophecies of the Old Testament prophets with regard to the crucifixion. Psalm 69 talks about the gall and the vinegar that he was forced to drink. Psalm 22 almost uses the words of the scribes and Pharisees verbatim. Later on, another of the things that Jesus said, near the end of His time on the cross, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani! They thought He was calling Elijah. They didn't really listen to what He was saying. They seldom did. They thought it was Elijah He was calling for. But what He was saying is the very first verse of Psalm 22. And any good teacher in Israel during that time always taught his students to memorize a particular part of a scripture and they would ask the students to repeat that portion of scripture after he tells them the very first line of that scripture. What Jesus was doing on the cross was as the teacher of the Lord, as the teacher of Israel, getting his disciples to look into Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, we find a description of crucifixion that was written by David over a thousand years before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. When crucifixion wasn't at all implied or even used by any of the nations around David. It was invented by the Persians, by the way, and implemented by the Romans later on when they became rulers of the world. But we find here... In Psalm 22, those very words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that 
Scripture, if you read it, and of course you are going to because we're going to do it right now, read it together with me. Psalm 22. You'll see the crucifixion in the very words of David so long before anyone knew anything at all about crucifying. There are many other things in here that we're going to see as we read through the psalm. We'll only read the first half of the psalm. But it starts out with those words again. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning. Jesus was feeling so far from his Father. And for the first time, he was separated from God the Father. Never before had he experienced such an agony. And it was because of the sin that was laid upon him. The Apostle Paul tells us that he became sin, having taken our sin upon himself. He was without sin. He knew nothing of sin until that moment when he drank that cup, the cup of the wrath of God. And having drunk it, he was now unable to be in the presence of his Father for the first time ever. Why have you forsaken me? He says in verse 2, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not, and, and not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and, you were, and, and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. Here's the heart of a saint, a child of God, who's crying out, Lord, Look how faithful you have been to your people. Why is this happening to me? Why are you so far from me? Why have you forsaken me? In verse 6 he says, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. That is what they were saying. A direct reference in the Word of God to the words those evil men were speaking at the cross at the foot of Jesus. They had no excuse. They would have come back to that passage because Jesus did indeed quote that first verse. And I'm convinced that at least some of them did because we're told elsewhere that many of the priests came to the knowledge of salvation through His resurrection. After He was raised from the dead, they got it. And I believe they got it because they would have come back to this psalm that he quoted the first verse of and they realized that's about him. It's all about him. It goes on further in chapter 22 of the great book of Psalms. Verse 9 says, But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Crucifixion does that. The thirst that must have been so unquenchable. The fact that he was on the cross having to bear the weight of his body with two nails in his arms in his hands and not being able to support himself for very long, letting the weight of his body come down in pain, reeking through his body in such a way as to force him to try to bring himself up again so he could breathe. 
and constantly having to do that would take the weight from the weight of his body, removing the shoulder joints, separating the joints, just as it is spoken of here. My joints, I'm thirsty. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. Again, through that suffering, one of the experiences of those who would be crucified is heart failure. Over time, the heart would either burst or just stop beating. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. Again, so thirsty, so dry, couldn't hardly move his tongue from the roof of his mouth. And that may be partly why some of them thought he was calling out to Elijah. Because the words that he was trying to speak were probably not as clear because of that dryness. Dogs have surrounded me, verse 16 says. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. How much more descriptive does it have to be to understand that this is a picture of crucifixion? They indeed did exactly that. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and my clothing. For my clothing they cast lots. The Roman soldiers did that. You saw that. It is fulfillment of these things. All of these things that are recorded in Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 and Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, they all spoke of this suffering servant. But those evil men standing before the Lord Jesus Christ in all of the pain that he was suffering never put it together. Perhaps again some did. They were among those who were before the Lord that day. The elders, the chief priests, the scribes. Then near the end of the crucifixion, which took a total of six hours, the first three hours from nine till noon, apparently a bright sunny day in Israel, but something took place at noontime. The Bible describes it as a darkness that came over all the earth. That wasn't an eclipse. We know that because it was a season of full moon. And if there is a full moon, then it's not possible that the moon would be in the position that would be required for an eclipse. It was supernatural. It wasn't just cloud cover. It was darkness. Luke tells us the sun went out. It just did not shine at all. Perhaps it was an eclipse if it was the Father putting His hand between the earth and the sun. I wouldn't rule that out. But it was indeed supernatural. And by the way, that event was recorded extra-biblically in many different places. In other parts of the world, it wasn't just in Jerusalem. That darkness was for a reason. Perhaps it was because the father was weeping for his only son. And darkness came over the world as an expression of his grief. 
Perhaps you've seen the movie that was produced by Mel Gibson on the crucifixion. Whether or not it was accurate, and I think it was fairly accurate in terms of the things that Jesus had to endure, but one scene in that movie stood out in my mind as perhaps the most significant. It was a moment when Jesus said, It is finished. And at that moment, the movie depicts a raindrop coming from heaven, dropping down to the earth and falling at the feet of the cross, at the feet of Jesus, and splattering on the ground. And my mind just went to God, the Father, shedding a tear for His Son. God was there. What was His perspective? It was His will. As painful as it was, it was His will that these things had to take place. But what was His emotion during that time? As a father, watching his only beloved son dying, bearing the sins of the world upon himself. All I can say is that it must have been a very sad time in heaven. The angels were there. They watched. They were wondering, why is this happening? How can this be? They hadn't been told. They hadn't known the rest of the story. Satan and all of those angels that were with him that had left their estate and followed after this one who was the dragon, the lie of this angel, took a third of the angels with him. They were there. Paul tells us that on the cross, Jesus put them to an open shame. At the end of the time that He was on the cross, after having spoken those other six sayings, most of which we've mentioned, again, the last word of Jesus was, Father, into Your hands I commend My Spirit. They didn't kill Jesus. Jesus had said, no man takes my life from me. I give it up willingly. And Jesus at that hour, because it was the right time, the perfect time for the sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who was to be slain from the foundation of the earth, must die at the appropriate time. On the day of Passover, it was three o'clock in the afternoon. That was a time that they would take the sacrificial lamb into the temple and slaughter that lamb, shedding its blood, and the high priest would take the blood into the Holy of Holies and ask for the Lord to forgive His people. He didn't actually go into the Holy of Holies on then, but on that day. But He did perform the sacrifice. And the sacrifice was for the purpose of salvation. It was a yearly sacrifice on the day of Passover in commemoration of the great event that they all knew of when the Lord delivered them out of the slavery of Egypt. 
on that particular day, the day of Passover, at that particular time, the time that the Passover lamb was to be slain, Jesus breathed his last. While he was still on the cross, there were other individuals who were there also, who had witnessed all of these things. Among them was Nicodemus. Nicodemus is only mentioned by the, the Apostle John in his writing of these events. And it's at the time when they take Jesus down from the cross that Nicodemus is introduced as a follower of Jesus. Remember Nicodemus? He was mentioned once before in the Gospel of John, in chapter 3 of John's Gospel, where Nicodemus had come to Jesus by night. And he recognized that Jesus was a man of God. And he had said, admittedly, I know that you are from God because no man can do these things that you are doing. Remember the story in John's Gospel. Jesus said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus was confused by that, remember? He said, what, what are you talking about? It, it, it's not possible that a man can enter his mother's womb and be born a second time. And Jesus said, no, no, you don't get it. Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand? I'm talking about spiritual things. These are spiritual things Jesus is saying to him. A man must be born again. A man is going to be born again if he is born of water and the Spirit. All of us have been born through water, the natural birth. But Jesus was talking about the time in our lives when we must come to a conclusion about who this one that we now worship is. He's the very Son of God and He died so that you and I could have the salvation that He was offering. He offered it to Nicodemus in that encounter that night. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Nicodemus wasn't quite there yet, but it took a while and he did apparently come to that saving knowledge and he was there at the cross. And he brought 75 pounds of spices for the purpose of putting Jesus into a, a burial cloth with spices that were enough spices to bury the most wealthy of individuals. It was a kingly offering. It was a very expensive offering. But Nicodemus also, as a Sadducee, had another friend who was also a Sadducee there as well. His name was Joseph. Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea was a secret worshiper of Jesus Christ. Secret because he feared the Jews. He was a very wealthy man, we're told, and it's very likely that he didn't really know how to deal with the fact that all of those others of the Sanhedrin were saying so many evil things when he saw nothing wrong with this man, but he wasn't able to come to the place where he could say, wait a minute, we're all wrong. But yet he was there at the cross. He saw all of those things that had been done. And it was he who went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Why is that significant? It's because Joseph of Arimathea fulfilled another prophetic statement in the Word of God. In Isaiah chapter 53, he was buried among the rich, but he died among thieves. In fulfillment of Isaiah 53, Joseph of Arimathea made his own tomb 
available to Jesus to be put into. He made sure that the the body was in the tomb and the tomb was secured by a rolling of the stone in front of the tomb. He had gone to Pilate to get the body to do that and Pilate agreed. Then there was a centurion. The centurion who stood all that time making sure that the crowd didn't get out of control. He and his soldiers who were there, all of those Gentiles seated around or standing around this cross of these three men and the one in the middle hearing him say those words that he spoke. The centurion's response at the death of Jesus was this. Surely this was the Son of God. He got it. A Gentile. I'm not sure that he knew what to do with that information, but he got it. He understood. This was not just a man. What about those Roman soldiers? Well, remember, they were there, and they took his garment, and they cast lots for it. We read that. They were in in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, whether they knew it or not. My prayer is that some of them did get it, but we got told. Finally, we, we do know that there were people who certainly did get it. We've already mentioned Mary and John. But there's also Mary Magdalene. She was there. Remember, Mary Magdalene had seven demons cast out of her. She was a follower of Jesus in Galilee and all the places that he went. She and some of the other women that are mentioned here, Mary, in some of the translations says, the other Mary, not to be confused with Mary Magdalene or Mary, the mother of Jesus, but the other Mary, and also Salome and other women with them. They were there. They saw him, they heard him, they wept for him. Were you there? Was I there? Which of these individuals can you identify with? There was a time when I think that I would be likely to say, that I could identify with the chief priests. I could be among those like them or the thieves who were willing to disregard everything that I had heard. That was me many years ago. But by the grace of God, I am today what I am. And by the grace of God, so are you. So whether in your past days or whether in this present hour, were you there? Did you watch him? Did you hear his voice cry out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? Did you hear him say the words, It is finished. Were you like the centurion coming to that realization at the very death of Jesus Christ and seeing how he made it so, so very evident that He was indeed the Savior of the world, the Son of the living God. Perhaps like Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus, not really willing to be very vocal about your faith because you feared other people, because you don't want other people to think badly of you. Friends, He died for you as well. No matter what 
you might have thought in the past or what you might think of yourself now. The truth of the matter is, if you have accepted the salvation that He offered through His death, burial, and resurrection, you are a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things are new. And you are like Mary the mother, maybe looking at the death of Jesus Christ in a completely different way than you would have if you had been in the state that you once were. But you're no longer there if you're a believer in Christ. Yet if you're not a believer in Christ, you can probably identify with several of those other people. Perhaps most of them did not turn, did not realize, did not come to faith. They were there at the cross. The evidence was so very, very powerful. The prophets had spoken. And it was indeed fulfillment in many, many different places of the Word of God that speaks on these things. Every one of them was fulfilled by Christ. The two thieves. Which one of those two are you? Were you there? Psalm 20. In answer to this statement that is made by the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. At the cross, above his head, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Psalm 20, verse 9 says, Save, Lord. May the King answer when we call. Let that be your prayer. Save, Lord. And He will answer because He is King. He will come. And He will do what He has promised to do to anyone. Because it's not God's will that any should perish, but they all should come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Oh, people of God, oh, anyone who is here hearing these words, listen to what the Word of God says. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, it causes me to tremble. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, how could anyone not, after all that was done, recognize that You are indeed the Savior of the world? How could anyone not accept the offer of salvation that You freely give? How could anyone who is at that day standing before you at the cross not see that you are indeed king, not of Jews only, but of all the world? They were right indeed that they said he saved others and himself he cannot save. But it's because you did not come 
down from the cross, that these words ring true in our hearts. Let us not leave this place without that true knowledge of saving faith in Christ Jesus our Lord.